it gives me great pleasure uh, to be able to welcome you to the first of these Social Contract Research Network seminars of um, 2023. Um, as you will know by now, if you're a familiar face, and I see lots of familiar people here, so welcome back. Uh, we have four of these each semester, uh, where we're looking at aspects of the social contract and uh, latterly, mainly of the state of nature, um, trying to tease out different uh, ideological and theoretical implications and contours of those ideas, uh, and then to make those uh, talks and question and answer times available to anyone who uh, wants to engage with them around the world, because they they go up on YouTube uh, when, uh, when I have time to put them up. Um, I am delighted to be able to welcome today uh, our speaker uh, for this seminar, uh, Philip Pettit, uh, who is Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton and Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University, where I believe you are at the moment, Philip. Yes. Um, he's published very widely indeed. Uh, on themes related to the concerns of this seminar, including freedom and society, uh, public life, and most pertinently of all for this uh, Melbourne evening, uh, for the thought of Thomas Hobbes. Uh, Professor Pettit will speak for around 40 to 50 minutes, uh, after which time there'll be uh, opportunity for question and answer. Uh, can I ask you if you'd like to ask a question during the question time, just to jot a short version of it down in the chat? And then I will call on people to ask questions in the order in which um, the messages appear in the chat. Now, Professor Pettit also has very kindly prepared for us a handout, which I will now share uh, in the chat. Uh, so I'm sharing now a Dropbox link to a PDF file, uh, which is Professor Pettit's uh, handout uh, for this talk. So please do feel free uh, to follow uh, along with that. Uh, and the title uh, of the paper for this seminar is Hobbes's Distinctive View of the Social Contract. Uh, so please join with me in welcoming Professor Philip Petty. Thank, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, everybody. It's very nice to be here. Uh, <laughs> to be there. I wish I were there. It would be more fun if we were all there. Anyhow, so, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, Sandra Field knows far more about Hobbes than I do. She's uh, <laughs> she's uh, hiding there behind a photograph of hers rather than her um, in YouTube's sort or of presentation. But let me just talk about I do think Hobbes is extraordinarily interesting, but he is really very distinctive. And so if you're thinking about the social contract in general, or even the state of nature idea in general, um, you've got to recognize that Hobbes has really, uh, he doesn't talk about the social contract in the way in which, you know, uh, I remember people like um, Blair used to go on and on about the social contract in England. It's really a much more specific idea in his, in, in his way of thinking. So let me say, I thought I'd begin with some historical context. I mean, it's really just, uh, worth recalling, I mean, the context in which he was writing. So it's 17th century England and actually France, uh, he wrote much of the biggest work, Leviathan, political theory, while he was in France between 1640 and 1651. But uh, it's, uh, 
it's really worth just remembering exactly what was happening at that time. We're talking about the mid 17th century. So it's, it's actually in the middle of the 30 years war in Europe. So 1618 to 1648 is the 30 years war. And it really was the fiercest of wars. It reduced Germany in particular, and the various German states to really near chaos with, uh, uh, you know, wandering mercenary troops and so on. It really was a pretty awful period. And Hobbes was well aware of just how bad things were. He was very much afraid that things would turn out to be just as bad in England. After all, he left England in 1640, and there's some evidence that he left, actually, for fear of um, the civil war that he saw brewing. And indeed, there was a civil war brewing between Parliament, as it's often put, and the king. And both the Thirty Years' War, of course, and the war in, in, in England, while they always had more specific territorial and political sort of sides to them, they were essentially grounded in the uh, post-Reformation period. Remember, the Reformation is there for about 100 years. There have been various Protestant sects, apart from Lutheranism, that have prospered, and of course, apart from the Church of England in 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 uh, in Britain, in England. Um, and they've generated, well, two things, really. And these are the two I just mentioned in the way of background. One is a sense of total dissension, that society is breaking apart. After all, this is a world where, I mean, there always have been wars and great divisions and so on, but they all seem to be more or less parochial or local uh, to one area or another. And the Pope really had a great deal of authority in the, say, 1400s, 1500s. And all of that was gone. I mean, there was now it was sundered um, across Europe, the divide between uh, between the different religious sects. That's one part of the background. The other is uh, something that the Reformation brought on stream, which is a novel way of thinking about uh, the relationship between individuals and their state. After all, the Reformation was built on the idea of going back to the word of God, but reading the word of God, you yourself, rather than having it interpreted for you by an authoritative church, Great emphasis, therefore, on individual freedom of conscience. Well, freedom of conscience with, in maybe quotes, but a great deal of emphasis by contrast with an earlier period on the individual's autonomy. I mean, not much by contrast with later periods, perhaps, but at the time it really was quite novel. And so you had two problems, in a way, from Hobbes's point of view, the point of view of someone like Hobbes. On the one hand, you had massive civil dissension and the prospect, if not the reality, of civil war. On the other hand, you have the sense that the state had to be responsive more to individuals. It couldn't sort of, it couldn't be imposed with just the authority of God, although of course they all claimed God to support whatever state they had, but it couldn't be imposed from on high without any reference whatsoever, at least as he thought about things. And his problem was to identify a state that was strong enough to deal with the dissension post-Reformation, but not so strong as to be absolutely insensitive to the concern with individual autonomy and the right of individuals to have a say in how they are governed. And this really is the, this is his, his big problem, how to bring these two things together, a state that's justify a state that is strong enough to 
uh, eliminate dissension, but are responsive enough to individuals to pass muster with them under this new way of thinking about individuals and their relationship to authority. That's the background. He is, I should mention, the first one really to make great use of the notion of contract, which we'll be coming to. But there is a background uh, that the term had been used by a group of whom probably no one speaks nowadays, but they were called at the time often monarchomachs, or those who struggled with the king. And they were usually a religious um, minority, like in France, they were a Huguenot minority. Um, elsewhere, there were different minorities, but they all argued that, look, the king, no matter how much power he had, as in France or authority, had to be responsive to um, them because, so they argued, if the king had authority, it, it had to be by some sort of agreement with the people way back in the past. And if he is persecuting them, as the king was in France, in effect, or certainly threatening it all the time, then that had to be a breach of the presumptive terms of that contract. So the notion of the contract was in use, but it wasn't used very formally and certainly not in any theoretically exact way. But that's where Hobbes gets it from. But he makes something quite novel of it. And really, he's the origin almost, you might say, of the contractarian tradition as we think of it. Okay, so <clears throat> in approaching his problem of justifying a strong but responsive state, I think we can think of Hobbes moving with two major sort of background theories. I think I've called them premises in the handout. One is a theory of human nature. And the other is a theory, you might say, about the source of moral demands on individual human beings, independently of the institutions under which they live. So on the human nature side, I mean, sometimes people say about Hobbes that he thought of human beings as like bestial, is the phrase often used. And I really, really bristle at that because Hobbes was actually, indeed, I remember, if I can interrupt, I remember once introducing a, a, a commentary on someone who had spoken this uh, in these terms by saying that I was here on behalf of the Society for the Protection of Animals and uh, non-human animals, the beasts, as Hobbes would have called them. Because his view was that you look at the world of the beasts, they're, 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 they get on pretty well in general. Okay, maybe the wolves fight over a piece of meat or the lions or whatever. But, you know, once they've settled the fight, one's got or the other, uh, goes away. I mean, it's it's peace. So it's a relatively an okay world, the bestial world. The human world, by contrast for Hobbes, is a world in which people live in a, a zero-sum game, to use a term he wouldn't have understood, meaning it's a game in which, so to speak, you can't have a win-win. If one wins, another loses. It's a struggle for well, he put it himself for eminence. That's what he thinks human beings are after. They want to have more than others. Now, why so? Because he thinks about human beings as having discovered language, and he thinks that language is what makes them so different from the other animals. It's a very striking claim, and that is actually, I think, Hobbes' probably most original claim, and ironically, it's one of the least emphasized. 
However, he thinks that language um, has changed human beings. They've invented language, but it's transformed the nature of the inventors. It's done that to some really important good, but also to some ill. On the good side, what language has done is enabled people, and he argues this at some length, enable people to think in abstract terms, not just about this, that, and the other, but to think about types, but also to reason, to set up premises, drive them, argue, therefore so-and-so. Dogs don't do that. He was absolutely clear about that in his mind. Only human beings do it, and they do it by virtue of having language. Just like you can only multiply if you've got number a numeral system with a zero, like the decimal system. Try to multiply with, for example, Roman numerals. It's extraordinarily difficult. In fact, people have struggled to work out a method whereby you might multiply with, you know, the one, two, three, um, IV, V, VI. You can't do it. Hobbes's view really is that it's a bit like up to in the animals, human beings. You can reason once you have language, which is like a grand notation. But in the absence of language, you can't. So there was a great good that language brought on stream for human beings. They could reason. They could also make contracts with one another. As he says, animals can't make contracts, but I can give my word to you if you give me your word, give your word to me. And that was a great boon from his point of view. But on the negative side, what language did was enable people to compare themselves with one another, enable people to recognize that if they had a lot of goodies, but the other guy had more, then the other guy might be able to squash them. And in particular, looking forward into the future, their destiny would be very unsure unless they had more than the other person, more resources and therefore more power. That really, he thought, was what bothers human beings. They look for more than the other. They look for what he called eminence or what economists nowadays would call a positional good. They wanted to be number one or in the top 10 or whatever, not just to be on the average. And he says that means that as they struggle with one another, no one's ever going to be happy because there's always going to be someone above above you that you'll want to, as it were, battle with. And, uh, and that means that the battle goes on and on and on. Okay, so that's the negative side of the theory of human nature. So that's the view of human nature he had. Now, the view he had of human morality was actually very debunking and... Um, to many people sort of shocking in a way. Um, what he argues is this. If um, as human beings, we can't help but be concerned about our own welfare. I mean, he's. I think what he's in mind is something like this. If you've got a, a toothache, you really worry about it. It takes you to the dentist, you know, but if somebody else has a toothache, that doesn't really bother you except by sympathy. But it's not selfishness on your part that you should care about your toothache. toothache. It just comes with the territory. It's part of being a rational agent that the concerns you have, the desires, desires you have, they involve you in the first place, moving you, being concerned. Not that you don't have desires for other people as well, but in the first place, your desires are your desires. Now, his view is that um, 
the fundamental sort of requirement on a human being out of society, he's imagining a human being now just taking the human being on their own, is that they have to look after themselves. Um, they've got to have that sort of self-concern. And he treats this actually as he calls it a natural law. And the natural laws are the laws of self-interest, as he puts it somewhere. He was, of course, taking over a notion, the notion of natural law, which had been there from medieval days. Thomas Aquinas spoke a lot about natural law, and it had come down the 17th century through mainly religious circles. And the idea of natural law in his time was really the law of God. But what Hobbes is doing is, look, the only law we have, as we're out of institutions, is the law that you've got to look after yourself. You know, and actually Aquinas had said that the first law of nature was self-preservation. Um, so he wasn't entirely novel, but he makes much more of it than anybody else before him. You might say, well, aren't the laws of nature God's laws? And he says in one lovely passage in the English Leviathan published in 1651, he says that the theorems of, I think he calls them dictates of self-interest, that's really what they are. But he says they can be regarded as the laws of God insofar as that's what God would wish for us, that we actually obey these dictates of self-interest. Notice, though, as people have drawn attention to, the Latin version of Leviathan, which is published some years later, I think in 1651 or 58, if I remember, that reference to God is removed. I think that was really just his... He's quoting the pill for his audience at the time. Really, he thinks what, um, what natural law is about is you've got to look after yourself. And that means you must look after your self-interest. You absolutely can't jeopardize it. And it means that really you may do anything that's required by self-interest. This is now just by nature. Okay, so he's got these two theories of human nature and then of, of morality. And now you can see how those two theories are going to lead them to a very distinctive view of what we have learned to call the state of nature. And he called it the state of nature. It's an unhappy word because the word state appears as in the state. Actually, Hobbes would normally have said the commonwealth for the state. So the state, I prefer to say the condition of nature, meaning before any institutions are set up by human beings, you're supposed to imagine uh, both what they would have by nature and what would be uh, uh, what would be required of them by their nature, morally, so to speak. He does admit, by the way, I should say, I said that human beings, as he thinks of them, state of nature, already have had language. And he does say at one point, I th think of only one context in his work, he says, as if by a social contract, you know, language was established with common meanings, but he never uses that phrase elsewhere. And that's an earlier work in any case. I think he, he just wants to turn his back on how language rose. He has no idea, but it's what made the difference. And his state of nature, his condition of nature is the condition in which people are after having discovered language. Okay, so now uh, this takes us to his argument as I've described it here. And the interesting thing, if you take those two theories of human nature and human morality, and now you ask, what is life going to be like in the condition of nature? And you can see that uh, 
it really is straight away implied that it's going to be, as Hobbes describes the state of nature, nasty life in the state of nature is nasty, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. Probably the most famous five-fold, five collection of five epithets in the English language. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And the reason he thinks that that will be so, of course, is that human beings by nature are going to be always looking for the edge on the other. They're never going to be happy with having the same. They're each going to want more power than the other, more resources than the other. So that means that's the constant struggle that's that's uh, uh, built in there. And of course, as a matter of self-interest, they're not going to give up on that to another. They're not just to cede their power to to another in a, in a one-to-one sort of relationship. And that really does leave us in a pretty chaotic state, the condition of nature. It's going to be, however, and this is perhaps the good thing, given self-interest, and you imagine people in this condition of nature, you know, always looking over their shoulders at everybody else, living in a state of constant distrust. You can imagine that in that condition, it's, each of them is going to realize, cripes, if we've got any way out of this predicament, if we've got any exit from the condition of nature, we really should seek it. And each of them is going to think that, as Hobbes says, as a matter of self-interest. In fact, they're going to be required as a matter of self-interest to seek any avenue they can find out of that condition of nature. That's what he calls the first law, actually, and it's a law of self-interest. The first law uh, of, of, natu of natural law is to seek any opportunity for peace that presents itself. Okay, so now what might actually provide that sort of peace? Well, I said that language enables people to make contracts with one another. He was very emphatic about that. And of course, the obvious solution would be, well, they'd get themselves out of this hole, so to speak, that they're otherwise in, if only they can make a contract with one another, an agreement with one another, to live in peace together. And that sounds like, well, why not do that? Why not straight away, social contract, the subjects make a contract with one another to live in peace together. Sounds great. Uh, uh, but Hobbes says there's a real problem here. He says, if you if they were to make a contract like that with one another, how could they trust one another to keep their end of the contract? I make a contract with you to, I'm going to respect, let's suppose, what you claim as your land today. I expect you to respect what I claim as my land tomorrow. But after all, fine, I let you, um, I, uh, I, I let you, do whatever you do in your land today, but how can I be sure that you won't, especially if that's enabled you to gain power, resources, whatever, really ride roughshod over me tomorrow? He says this condition of distrust means that as a matter of self-interest, these people can't entrust themselves to one another. They can't make that sort of bilateral or multilateral contract with one another that would expose them, each of them, to the harm that the other might do. So how are you going to, how are they going to get out of this problem? Well, what he says is they can only get out of this problem if they um, 
if they can make a contract that's going to be enforced, but a contract that's going to be enforced against each of them by an independent agency. Now, if you could have an independent agency that really enforced the terms of a contract, for example, wouldn't that be fantastic? You know, we contract peace with one another and then we hand over the arrangement, the terms of the arrangement to an independent agent and let that agent decide to, uh, uh, to impose the arrangement. Well, of course, one issue is how could you trust that sort of agent, that enforcer, that independent enforcer? And in any case, where would you find one? And if you did find one, why would they be willing to enforce it? And that's really, that's the problem that I think he struggles with and comes up with an ingenious uh, solution to. Uh, they're not able to uh, make a contact with one another um, unless they get an enforcer, where will they get an enforcer? And then he comes up with this simple idea. He says, look, suppose they made a contract with one another to recognize some independent agent or agency, might be an individual, might be a small group, as, and he uses a word that was then just coming into usage, as a sovereign, as a supreme power. So they contract with one another to make, you know, X, whoever X is, the supreme authority. And by that, he means an authority who can lay down laws under which they will then live with one another together in peace. They don't contract about the laws. They just now contract about establishing this supreme lawmaker. And the idea is he will establish or she will establish or they will establish the laws under which the subjects all live together. And um, wouldn't that be terrific? Now, after all, um, we're making the contact with one another and this person is being empowered by us. Uh, think of the person as being out of the room, so to speak, when the subjects get together. And when that person comes back in, they say, hail sovereign. We, we recognize you as sovereign. We all unanimously agree that you are going to be the boss. You're going to lay down the laws and we contract with one another and we know you will enforce us in this contract. Each of us, we contract with another to obey your laws. Well, now one, two questions about that enforcer. Of course, one is, would the agent or agency in question be willing to go ahead with this arrangement? Well, you know, now you go back to the theory of self-interest. I mean, this person, as Hobbes imagined, couldn't possibly say no, because this is a wonderful sort of invitation. They'll have extraordinary power. They can obviously look after their own nest pretty well, even if they've got these duties vis-a-vis -vis others. But after all, that sort of power that makes them really safe and sound, and they're going to feel, wow, this is a, this is a hell of a deal. They're going to say, yes, they're certainly going to be willing as a result of ordinary self-interest, in self-interest, in the natural law of self-interest, they will say, yes, I'll do it. Would they be effective? That's the second question. Well, Hobbes thinks yes, because he says, look, when the law is broken, he takes it, it's generally broken by just the single offender and maybe a small group of offenders. But now what can the sovereign do? Well, the sovereign will be able to 
in virtue of their contract with one another to recognize him or her or them, the sovereign is going to be able to, um, uh, to get others to act against any offender like that. So the sovereign is going to have a lot of power. I mean, the sovereign can perhaps commission some of these people, the others, as police officers or army or whatever, and say, your job is to, and perhaps pay them or whatever, but in any case, they're going to be bound by their contract to obey the sovereign, to obey the sovereign indeed. And, uh, and of course, they're going to also see this as pretty well longer term in their self-interest. You know, let's get this guy who's broken the law or whatever, and on behalf of the sovereign, let's um, act as the sovereign wishes, punishes him. And that will keep offenders in general in line. So now the idea is the sovereign has been selected by the subjects. He's not one of them. As an independent agent, maybe he was one of the population, it doesn't matter. Um, but he's certainly a, one of the voting or contracting uh, subjects. They've created this power, given him this power, or her this power, and they've come back in, the sovereign, and now they start laying down laws. They're delighted with their position, uh, happy to go along in self-interest, and now they're also effective. They can work against any one or any small number of offenders by using the power of others, mobilizing the power that's been put at their disposal in order to discipline the offender or offenders. Okay, so this now looks like uh, we're sort of going hunky-dory so far from Hobbes's point of view, we, because we have these subjects who, as subjects or individuals, are responded to by the state they've set up, because they're the ones who've contracted to acknowledge this sovereign who will be their lawgiver and lawmaker and law imposer. Um, and they've done that because that serves their self-interest. Otherwise, they live in a condition of nature where they're in constant struggle, where life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short. And so from their point of view, this is a hell of a deal too. From the sovereign's point of view, it's also, it's a very, very good deal because he's, or she's, or they's got all, they've got all that power. And they're also going to be effective in imposing the law. And there's no problem of distrust now, remember, because from the point of view of each individual, if they wonder, well, will other people keep the law? You know, is it really, am I sensible to agree to the, and, and each is going to think, oh yeah, because the sovereign is going to be down on them like a hammer if they break the law. And therefore, you know, I'm going to live in peace. This is fantastic. This is how Hobbes now presents it. But of course, there is still a problem, which is on the face of it, this means that um, that actually this sovereign can do anything, that this sovereign has absolute power. This sovereign is, there no sort of, there's no constitution that says, well, you can do all of these things, but only so long as, you know, and then you put in the clause of the constitution, certain rights are recognized, you know, free speech, freedom of association, no, you, you, you won't have anything like this, it appears, under this arrangement. In fact, you can't have anything like this because, and this, <laughs> there are two thoughts here in Hobbes, I think they're wonderfully balanced. This One thought is you can't have anything like that because after all, you can only contract 
into an arrangement where the contract made you can expect to be enforced by the sovereign. Otherwise, it offends against self-interest. In fact, he thinks that contract will be void. But you can't expect the enforcer that you set up as a byproduct, so to speak, of your contract with the other subjects. You can't expect them, that now supreme enforcer, uh, to enforce any limitations on their own power. Maybe back at the time of the contract, someone said, hey, well, you know, maybe we should uh, hesitate here. Maybe we should put in a, a restriction, some rights, you know, into the contract. So the contract, the contract, the sorry, sovereign can do all he wishes, she wishes, and laying down laws, except violate these rights. Well, wait a moment. Now, you can't expect the enforcer to enforce, to self-enforce, so to speak, to enforce against themselves that particular limitation. So you can't have any limitations on this story about a contract that gives rise to government. That's the negative thought. But he has a positive thought in consolation, so to speak. He says, well, you might think that's bad. You know, okay, we've got peace. Uh, but the cost of peace is this absolute sovereign. And he might say to you, well, I can see how he might rail at that prospect, worry about the fact that this group or this individual has such power over all of us. Uh, but he says, actually, think about it. There isn't really a big reason to worry. And here's why, as he argues. The sovereign has been brought in from outside, metaphorically speaking, and made sovereign. He's not one of the subjects who enter the contract. That sovereign has their power by virtue of the subjects keeping this contract under his enforcement, of course, as they naturally will. But I said that he or she could rely on other citizens, other subjects, I should say, to act against a single offender and, and to keep them in line. But suppose the sovereign has behaved in a way that's nasty enough to create a great number of offenders, to create a great number of outlaws, people who are just not going to obey these laws because they're so difficult or hard or whatever it might be. Suppose the sovereign is pretty nasty in the laws he or she imposes. Well, in that case, Hobbes thinks uh, there are going to be a lot of people who will become outlaws. They'll leave the society, or if the sovereign tries to punish them, they will escape and resist punishment. And he actually thinks, by the way, under natural law of self-interest, that you'd be entirely entitled to resist the sovereign, despite the contract, because you can't contract to not save your own life if the sovereign wants to take it, for example. So you're going to generate a lot of outlaws if you actually are too harsh. And he says, that means that this sovereign, albeit he, she, or they, have enormous power, they're going to be very careful about how they use that power because it's going to be in their interest to keep the people generally on side with them. Maybe they'll be harsh with a particular group, maybe they'll be harsh with everybody in this particular manner, but in general, they're going to be genial enough. Genial enough to be accepted by people in general. 
And the danger is if they create too many outlaws as the whole society will break down and they'll fail to be able to execute their job for which they were appointed as sovereigns, so to speak, to keep the peace. In which case, in self-interest, no one has a duty any longer to stick with the contract they made because the sovereign has failed to actually do the job of keeping the peace. So his argument is that in order to do the job given to them, the sovereign really has to behave pretty well. As he puts it often, the interest, the self-interest of the sovereign is identical with the interest of the people. Uh, as the sovereign, so to speak, looks after the people, they look after themselves. As the sovereign looks after themselves, himself, herself, themselves, they'll be looking after the people as well. So you're going to get a nice sort of balance, so he thinks. Ironically, I mean, we think of Hobbes, and indeed he was a defender of the most appalling view of politics, in my view, but still, it's noteworthy that uh, at least one person in his time, was it Bishop Bramhall, described Leviathan, the big work of 1651, where he sets out this picture as a rebel's catechism, because he thinks that on this theory, um, people are entitled to resist the sovereign, for example, if the sovereign is going to kill them or penalize them. Self-interest remains always a fallback in that way. And on this theory, if enough people, as I will put offside in that way, then the sovereign would topple a rebel's catechism because he thinks this is a, this is a, that's what Bramall thought, this is a recipe for disaster. Now Hobbes, of course, had erected his picture of the absolute sovereign the absolutist picture of government as it came to be called, he had, he had put that in place of what he saw as the really dangerous doctrines, which were uh, doctrines like, for example, traditional uh, civic republican doctrine on which, you know, the government or the state should be organized around interacting parts that constrained one another and so on, and where the people had a role, perhaps in elections, but certainly in standing for office and in various ways and serving on jur juries and courts had a certain degree of independence. Hobbes wants to throw all of that out because he thinks that would not bring you the strong state needed to deal with the sort of dissension in his time. He thinks you need a strong state. There's no separation of powers. It's all united, at least the power of the state, the supreme power in the body, the corporate or individual body of the sovereign. And that sovereign rules, so to speak, with an ardent rod. They've been established by virtue of the contract of the citizenry, so to speak, the continuing implicit contract of the citizenry, but that still gives them the right to rule just as they will. If there's any constraint on them, it's purely the self-constraint that they better not go too far or they'll put too many people offside and they will call, cause their own power to, to wither and, and decline. I think I should leave it at that, Chris, because I'm just on the 40 minutes, I think. No, we can't hear you. Ah, there we go. Um, yeah. I was just about to say thank you ever so much, Philip. Please, everybody, join me uh, in thanking uh, Philip for the paper. 
Oh, okay. Uh, and we will we will move to a, a time of question and answer. As I was saying um, at the beginning, if you do have a, a question or a comment that you'd like to make, please do write a, a short one-line version of it in the chat, and then I will I will call upon people in the order that those uh, questions and comments appear in the chat. Uh, and just while you're composing um, questions and comments, if I might begin, uh, Philip, with with one of my yeah. own, it's something that I've been wrestling with. Uh, over the months as as I've been working with Hobbes on on the social contracts and the state of nature myself. And, and it's the the question of the status of the social contract and the state of nature for Hobbes, whether he thought and whether he wanted us to think that he is referring to a historical situation or something else. You know, some some people have said that it's a thought experiment and there are other theories of what he was referring to and the particular angle that i'm i'm interested to, to see if you have any reflections on in relation to that is to what extent you think it matters um does it does it matter for hobbes whether it's happened or not because it seems to me that for his for it to work in in the way that you've been laying out for us it doesn't need to have happened nor do people need to believe that it happened, but we need to believe that other people believe that something like that happened. And we need to believe that other people will be motivated to obey the law in order for society to hold together. But we don't ourselves need in any way to, to conceive that something like a social contract or something like a state of nature happened. It, where where do you come down on this this state this question of the status of the state of nature in the social contract? I think I, I have a rather different view of the state of of the role of the contract in in Hobbes. People often say with contractual theory or theory of contract that they fall into two categories. One is the historical theory of contract, according to which, as a matter of history, um societies or polities rather began in some form of historical contract usually adding that it's been sustained continuously if so to speak implicitly tacitly by following generations um i don't think that hobbes really put much um credence in that view um, and i'll come to his own view in a moment People who say there's the historical theory of contract often contrasted with the normative use of the notion of contract. And there, of course, the main figure is John Rawls, but before him, Immanuel Kant. I mean, Kant said of this of the notion of the social contract, by contrast with Hobbes, and in particular Rousseau, that he was concerned with, he says that the it's merely an idea of reason, not a factual occurrence. And he says it's an idea of reason in the following sense. We ask, with the notion of the social contract, whether people could, it doesn't use the word rationally, but something like, whether people could rationally have agreed to these sorts of laws. And if we think, no, they couldn't rationally have agreed to them, then we think those are bad laws. He says, in other words, that the idea of the social contract is a touchstone of justice, as he puts it. 
Now, John Rawls in the 1970s, in his famous book, A Theory of Justice, builds on that idea. And he says, look, you want to know what a just uh, society would look like? Well, think about the society or the social order, the constitution that you yourself would support if you didn't know who you were going to be in the world governed by that social or political order. You didn't know whether you were going to be rich or poor. You didn't know whether you were going to be talented or not talented, this or that. You didn't know if you were going to be man or woman. Uh, think about what constitutional order you would, you would then opt for rationally. That's very like Kant. It's the normative use of the notion of contract. Okay, so those are the two standard ones, the historical use of contract to explain in some way the origin or legitimate the origin of polities. And on the other, the normative use is a touchstone of how a polity should, should operate. Now, I am not denying the utility of, for example, that second use of the contract at all, but I think that Hobbes had a third way of understanding the contract. Uh, I should say this is a little bit heterodox on my part, but it's not in, entirely. I mean, I'm not the only one who thinks this, but I, it's probably a minority view. So in order to introduce this third way, let me uh, tell you about, he, he, he asks at one point, how would you approach the question as to what is a circle? Good question. He said, we all recognize a circle, but now if you want to know what exactly constitutes a circle, what's essential for a circle to exist? And what he says, best way of knowing that is to ask, how would you make a circle? And he says, well, and he describes the use of a compass, you know, whereby you put a spike in the center and then you, you rotate it around. And he says, if you know how to make a circle, you know what a circle is. He doesn't use the language of essence, but you might say, you know, the nature or the essence of a circle is. That was sometimes called later by Vico in the later 17th century, described this principle as the verum factum principle. The best way of understanding what something is, is to understand how to make that something. Now, I think, and because that use of the circle is Hobbes's own. It's in um, one of his other books. But you can think about his story about the social contract as a story about how, just as I think of the compass as the ideal way of making a circle, the way of making a circle that explains to you why we think of this quick drawing on the blackboard or that quick drawing as a circle. It resembles that, you know, it's the same, but it tells you what the core is. I think he thinks that the social contract is supposed to tell you what the state is, what its function is, what it's really about. And he does that by saying, look, I've got a theory of human nature. I've got a theory of morality of, uh, you know, people ought to do out of institutions. And I can tell you on this, the basis of these two premises, as I call them, that people without institutions are going to be at loggerheads all the time. And that self-interest itself, was, we've got to get out of this. And then he tells you, look, the only way out of it, because they can't make one-to-one -one contracts, too much distrust, is to have an independent enforcer. And they can do that by getting someone who's going to be delighted with the power they're thereby given as an absolute sovereign. It's going to be effective so long as they don't put many too many people offside. And he says, that's the one and only way 
in which you can get a state uh, to exist, in which you can make a state, so to speak. People make a state under his story about the social contract. And I think he thinks that that reveals what the primary function of the state is, which is now, as you can see, to uh, to keep the peace by means of establishing a a regime of law which most people are happy enough to go along with, you know, which doesn't create too many outliers, too many outlaws. That's what the state ideally is about. And actually he has, people are probably aware of this, but I really should emphasize, he has actually quite a uh, an endearing view of how the sovereign should operate, you know, that he should care about, they should care about citizens and so on. They should, you know, be even-handed in their dealings with citizens. And he thinks of those as councils of self-interest or prudence for the sovereign. But of course, he thinks the good of the sovereign, which we serve by following these, would also be the good of the people. So he thinks he's got a really nifty theory of what the state is. And that's the role of the contract. It's the verum factum principle in, in practice. That's that's, I think, myself, the plausible reading of Hobbes. That's fascinating. It, it's almost in the etymological sense, then, a, an apocalyptic reading of the state of nature in the sense that it reveals the essence or reveals what's going on behind the state. This is what states are really about. Exactly. I mean, this, and this is, you know, Herbert Hart, famous book, What is Law? The Concept of Law, 1961. I mean, a classic legal theory asks, what is law? And then he tells you a story of what, what would happen in a world without law, how various problems would arise, how people would adjust to these problems. He doesn't think they make a contract. That's, that's specific to Hobbes. Uh, but how they'd make adjustments that would give rise to law. And then he tells you that's what the role of law is, the need that would drive that development. And that on this reading is what Hobbes is doing in his contract story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We have two questions that have appeared in the chat. Could I please invite uh, Jiang Tian Li uh, to ask your question now? Thank you. Uh, hello, I'm Jiang Tian Li. So my question is just uh, what's the relationship between the two premises? And uh, mm. does one derive the another? For example, it seems to me the theory of human morality shares with animals. Does the theory of human morality plus language derives theory of human nature? Um, I, it's a very good question. I've thought about this. I actually, I think they are independent of one another. I mean, you could have this theory of human nature without thinking that the law of self-interest was really the law that governs every individual. And of course, you could have that theory of the law of self-interest about what governs individuals without actually subscribing to his particular theory of human nature. Um, where does he get it? I mean, this emphasis on, on self-interest, it's a uh, that itself is interesting, and I must say, I don't have the historical expertise to comment on that. Um, I mean, there was always a recognition that, of course, people are concerned with their own welfare. But for Hobbes to take over the notion of natural law and say that the one and only law of nature 
ultimately derive from how do you serve your own interests best? That's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, I would say one thing, though, and this maybe talks about an interconnection, um, uh, Cheng San, between the two, which is the following. He, um, he does say, he doesn't ever say that seeking eminence is a law of nature. It's just looking after number one. Now, Rousseau, who followed him, and I think followed him quite closely in some of these ways, he distinguishes between two forms of self-love. One is he calls amour de soi, and the other he calls amour propre. Amour de soi, he says, every living creature has amour de soi, has this sort of self-love. It's not selfish, it's just built into the nature of any agent. The idea is that, look, uh, if, even if you desire the welfare of somebody else, it's your desire that's moving you for their welfare rather than their desire. It's your desire that's moving you. And in that way, you're always bonded to your own desires. And Amour de Soi in Rousseau is just simply you can't help but act on your own desires. And quite naturally, many of these desires will in turn um, relate to your own, your own welfare but not all. You might think of Hobbes and self-interest as being a little bit like that, that it's just like amour de soi. Now, Rousseau thinks that it's with language and with institutions that human beings begin to develop amour propre, which is the love of having more than someone else. And that's exactly what Hobbes calls the love of eminence. And where Rousseau says amour de soi is totally innocent, shared with all animals, and more proper, he thinks, is reprehensible. I think that Hobbes might argue in Favre's view of self-interest as, look, this is totally innocent sort of concern with your own welfare, acting on your own desires, which happen to be mainly for your own welfare and good part for your own welfare. That's totally innocent. But he might actually deplore the love of eminence. You might think it's inevitable, but not think it's particularly uh, worthy. That's the only connection I can think between them. I, I think they're differently sourced, but, uh, you know, someone like San, Sa Sandra Field might have a different view on that. She knows the history really better than I do. Yangtan, do you want to ask a follow-up on that, or Sandra, indeed, if you want to intervene? Oh, I'm good. Thank you for your answer. Thank you. In that case, um, Davide, could you please ask your question? Yeah. Hi, thank you for the presentation. I have a couple of questions. The first one is on what you believe to be <clears throat> the main role of contemporary approaches to Hobbes' theory. I was wondering whether you think that the main goal should be to rephrase Hobbes' theory in a language that's more contemporary, maybe in a way you think, you can think maybe of what uh, David Gauthier did in his work, or um, there Sorry, should be who, who some- Who did his work? Uh, oh, Gauthier, David Gauthier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, or do you think that the main goal should be to start from Hobbes, but to reshape the theory in a more, let's say, substantial way. Well, and uh, sorry. 
No, if you want to answer straight away, then I can ask my second question later. Okay, well, let me let me uh, talk to that first of all. That's a it's a very interesting question. I guess on the politics front, I mean, I first of all, I think that Hobbes is really the the most comprehensive, sharp, you know, um, connected of all of the political philosophers. I think there's no one in the history, you know, the Western history, anyhow, which is all I know, really, um, who compares with with him. And he's, for that reason alone, it's, you can see how clever, I mean, how clever this argument is. You know, all of the pieces are there. And this is itself only a small part of a much larger web of interconnected pieces and argument. And he's worth reading just to get a sense of the standards we ought to aspire to in thinking theoretically about politics and the need of politics and the nature of the state and so on. But I actually do, I find the, his theory of politics utterly um, reprehensible. I, I hate it. I, I think it would be a terrible view of how the state ought to operate nowadays. Although I, you know, I can't resist saying that certain populists, for example, without realizing it, are signing up to the idea of this absolute sovereign who just has this relationship with the real people, you know, in some way, elected perhaps, you know, but often in a system where, you know, the sovereign's got control over the elections anyhow. Um, I think that's almost the nearest we get in contemporary political thinking to Hobbesian thought, and I hate every every bit of it. I think that in Hobbes himself, looking back, I mean, he was deeply, deeply distressed by the chaos of the times he was living in. I think myself, you can interpret him as, so to speak, overreacting to that. I mean, in a way that was really understandable, but still overreacting to that. And when he says, for example, that... Um, People will always seek to have more than the other. Um, once you've got self-comparisons going on of the kind that language brings on stream and so on. And that's core to his thesis, remember, that the zero-sum game is inescapable. You know, being equal with others is also, also a positional good. You know, having equality with others requires defining your position, just as being first or above average requires defining your position. It's a positional good versus a substantive good of having enough to eat. You know, that isn't defined in terms of your position vis-a-vis -vis others, but equality is. And I don't see anything in Hobbes, actually, that would make it impossible to say, well, people might be happy with equality if they could achieve equality. You know, there's a question of in what domain of they would achieve equality, whatever. So I think that's that's one one thought against him. I think, on the other hand, he thinks that, and I mean, I've argued this at length elsewhere, but he thinks, for example, that the sovereign, the sovereign power, that there has to be a single source of power, but that it has to be a particular individual or a particular corporate body that operates by you know, its own rules of voting or whatever it might be. I just don't think that's right. I mean, um, an example I sometimes give, well, let me give you, uh, this might be taking too long, but I'll give it just very briefly. Gilbert Ryle used to tell a story, he was an Oxford philosopher, about the visitor to Oxford who asked to see, see around, and he was shown all 
29 colleges or however many there were in Ryle's time. And he said, well, that's great. I've seen all the colleges. Now, can you show me the university? And of course, it had to be explained to him that the university wasn't like another college. You know, it wasn't a, a building like that. It wasn't an institution that was coordinate with the other colleges. Rather, it was superordinate to the other colleges. It was the, an institution organization that existed and operated insofar as those colleges were bound to one another in contract. They constrained one another. They operated on the common rules. Now, in a sense, that university might be sovereign in things academic, determining who gets in, who qualifies, you know, what courses they have to take and so on. And similarly, you could have, in my view, a sovereign state that is wholly, for example, involves a lot of separation of powers, involves a lot of democracy, insofar as there are enough constraints between those strands within that organization, like constraints within the colleges and the university, to ensure that the state can operate as it were with a single will and a single mind, you know, can lay down laws that are coherent and are consistent with, with one another under the pressures of downwards from their upwards from the citizenry and, and the pressures, lateral pressures between different agencies of the state, like the, for example, the legislature, the executive and the judiciary. So I think he was he was wrong on that, too, you know. Um, so I, I don't think there's a lot to learn except by, you know, by, by reaction. You know, this is not what we want. And now let's see the arguments for that and then compare, you know, other proposals as to how, what the, how the state might be organized with it. So it's like Thank a you. foil against which it's useful to think in political theory, but I don't think it's a model, you know? Yeah, I also agree that um, in some sense, maybe the theory of sovereignty and the theory of how government ought to be shaped can be taken on at different times. Yes. And uh, my, my, my second point is maybe related to what you were mentioning on equality is about uh, some objections that have been advanced and that, that I, um, uh, to Hobbes' theory in particular from the anarchist side. I am thinking, um, for instance, about Michael Humer. I'm not sure you're yes. familiar with him, okay? And because uh, basically he argues that if you start from equality of power as a premise in the state of nature, the rational consequence of it should not be as uh, Hobbes maintains some sort of um, mutual violence that may erupt at any time, but rather due to, due to the fact that we are in a sense risk aware or risk averse, that should somehow breed mutual respect because that would be the most rational way to uh, go on about if we were in the state of nature, we wouldn't risk, we wouldn't risk our life just to take on someone else's stuff. But we would mean we would only be engaged, he says, in defensive wars in a way. Defenses mean individual wars. So um, I guess you somehow reject that. And so I was wondering if and how. Thank you. Well, I think this it's anyone's guess as to as what what would happen if if people were suddenly found themselves in that condition of nature as Hobbes describes it, of course. There's something deeply, deeply mistaken about it anyhow, because uh, 
they're all adults, you know, where are the children, where are the families, you know, as many people have raised this against Hobbes. Um, but if, if I mean, it's, so take it just as an as if fiction, if people, adult human beings found themselves in that position with equal power, um, would they move to a regime of mutual respect? I mean, it would be lovely to think they would, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to bet on it. You know, so for example, if terrible situation, but if um, we found ourselves in a position where we had to decide, are we going to have a state? You know, we're in this condition. Do we, we're going to have a state? Are we just going to have a free for all and depend on people? Choose their being risk averse. Depend on them respecting one another. I think that would be a terrible risk myself to take because, um, you know, someone was it David Hume or someone in that tradition who says that we should design our institutions so that they would survive even should men prove to be knaves, even should people prove to be, you know, pretty dastardly in how they behave. Well, you know, the thing about having a state with laws, however they're set up, is that it can be enabled to guard against those who might be knavish, as it were, within the ranks. Whereas if you have the um, the an anarchic sort of situation, then it's it's hard to see how anyone would be able to, would have the power individually and could reliably resist someone who chose to, uh, you know, to play the violence card and uh, and had enough resources at their disposal to do that. So I would say that's a very bad bet, you know, to go that way. Now, I think as a, as a matter of fact, one, one place where Hobbes is, I mean, we talked about, we talked just now about uh, the ways in which Hobbes maybe goes wrong, but one way in which he surely goes wrong is in imagining that without the state, you have to have a, a condition without any norms whatsoever in which people are just in constant battle. So, for example, there is lots of uh, uh, lots of work nowadays that argues that people will evolve norms of cooperation of various kinds if left to themselves, even independently of there being a independently of there being a state that imposes them. For Hobbes, it's a a binary. You either have the condition of nature, which is mayhem the free-for-all of, you know, hostile, mutual hostility. Or you have the ardent hand of the state, you know, chosen in the way he thinks ideally to be chosen, established. But I think that's a false dichotomy, as I think most people do. I mean, Locke, for example, that's the big difference between Locke and Hobbes, that he thinks in the state of nature, as he calls it, you would naturally have a lot of norms that people would live by. Um, just to give you an example of that, uh, David Lewis, um, probably one of the most outstanding philosophers of the 20th century, wrote mainly in technical stuff, but he wrote a wonderful book called Convention in 1969. And uh, it's probably one of the most influential books in philosophy in the sense that it's really influenced everything from economics to social science and lots of other areas. And what he argued in that, um, Imagine people living in a world where there are no conventions. And I mean by that, no, nothing that tells you which side of the road you should go on or, you know, how you should pass one another. 
nothing that tells you how you should greet one another. Do you shake hands with a friend? Do you kiss them on one cheek? Do you kiss them on both cheeks? Do you hug? You know, there are all sorts of ways in which people greet one another. Now, you can imagine, in principle, a world where there are no conventions of that kind. And you end up with what Lewis calls coordination predicaments, meaning that people want to do the same as one another in these sorts of encounters, but actually they don't really know what the other person is going to do. They know what they'd like to do, but they don't know what the other person's going to do that, and they, they don't mind what they do so long as it's the same thing. They either both shake hands, or they both kiss on the cheek, you know, they both hug. Uh, it's very embarrassing otherwise. And uh, Lewis argues really rather persuasively, I think, that actually in, in such a world, human beings would evolve ways of solving those coordination predicaments. Conventions would begin to appear, you know, based on precedent, you know, based on salience, based on examples, you know, from the natural world or whatever. And, uh, and that's a very different story from Hobbes. I mean, Hobbes says quite explicitly you know, um, what is a quart? What is a pint? You can't even have a convention establishing that, short of there being a state to sort of establish it. And that's that's an extraordinarily radical view. But going on, I mentioned Hart earlier, Hart's theory of law. He thinks that law would emerge, evolve, so to speak, in a world where perhaps there are already conventions, a la Lewis, and I think he's very persuasive about that. And these laws would emerge independently of there being a state there already to impose them. You'd have a legal system. Now, I can't go into the detail on that, but I think those are two just contemporary writers who are quite persuasive on that topic. Or, or Bernard Williams, if you want to, writing on truth and truthfulness, you know, in that book 20 years ago, argues a similar point that norms come naturally to human beings uh, independently of there being a state to impose them. And that's really, I think, makes the idea of the condition of nature as Hobbes describes it um, unpersuasive, you know. Thank, Thank you. you so much, David, for your question. Thank you, Philip, uh, for your answer. We, we have two further questions that have just come in. Um, and if the two questioners can be relatively brief and, and Philip, if you're able to be relatively brief in your answers, I, uh, I think we yeah. can squeeze them both in. So uh, Thomas, could you please ask? I, I'm question? the one in greatest danger of breaching the time. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Uh, thanks very much, Philip and uh, Chris. Uh, I think my question is quite uh, simple. It's just to what degree should we take Hobbes' distinction between commonwealths by institution and act position kind of seriously as informing oh, yeah. our understanding of what counts as a social contract theory. Right. Okay. So I didn't mention that at all. It's a complication I sort of decided to leave out. Um, it fits actually, I think, Thomas, quite well with my reading of the social contract theory, the role of the theory being to tell us essentially what the state is about. That's about establishing peace among subjects who otherwise might be expected to be just be at permanent loggerheads with one another. Um, if you take that view, then what Hobbes says, just to remind people, the may not know it, having told a story about how the state might be established in chapter 17, I think it is, of Leviathan, about how people will come together, 
seeing this opportunity, would establish this independent agency as their sovereign, would agree to go along with his or her, their uh, edicts. Um, he does all of that there. And then in the following chapter, I think it's 18, 19, 18 19, I can't remember. He says almost in passing, of course, most states are actually, and I should have mentioned this in response to your historical question, Chris, comes to think of it. He says, actually, of course, most states did not begin with this sort of, um, in this sort of process. But he says, because they begin by what he calls acquisition, meaning maybe one person or group just seizes power. They acquire power and they enforce their power on others. But he says in this passing remark, which I think is uh, is probably the darkest uh, remark in, Ho in all of Hobbes, and that's saying something he wrote a lot. He says, it really, it'd be the, exactly the same thing in a state by acquisition, more or less. And you think, what do you mean? It looks totally different. And he actually says, well, in another context, he says, suppose a conqueror comes along and he holds a sword over someone's head. And he says, do you accept me as sovereign? And uh, he says, the person is obviously in self-interest going to say, yes, yes, you're the boss, you're the sovereign, right? But then you sort of say, well, wait a moment, this story about how the state might get established via conquest, that story seems, if anything, to involve a, con a, a, a contract with the guy with the sword, with the sovereign, right? Who's otherwise going to cut off your head another contract with other subjects. So how can he say that the state by acquisition is essentially the same as the state by institution, which is what he calls the state as set up under the explicit contract. And the best sense I've been able to make of that is the following. I think his idea is that he doesn't say, he says, you're the sovereign. That's what I agreed to when you have the sword up there. But of course, he, let's say the conqueror with the sword, or she, is going to be the sovereign only if other people also accept them. So on this reading, what you're really saying is, okay, I'm with them, I'm with them, I agree with them, we're going to set up you as the sovereign, and I make a contract implicitly with the others, because I don't say to you, you're my master, you're my private boss. You could be the master, and I'm the only one, who gives you obedience, but you can't be the sovereign unless I'm together with other people in accepting you. I think it must be some thought like that that's going through Hobbes's mind. Although the very fact that he doesn't expand on it makes me feel that here, and every thinker, no matter how systematic, is always aware, if they're honest, of the uh, sort of weaker points in their overall theory. I think that Hobbes is probably aware of this as a somewhat weak point in his theory. This supposedly that makes no difference that it's acquired rather than instituted the state. And I think that's why he passes over it so quickly. But the very fact that he says that the actual origin being an acquisition rather than institution doesn't make a difference. It's still the same sort of state. That does fit with my reading of the contract theory as a, uh, a verum factum type issue, you know, showing how the state is made displaying how it is. The state being made by acquisition would be like someone drawing a circle on the board in a loose way, you know, just with their hand and chalk on the board. It's a sort of wave. But what are they making? Well, they're making a circle insofar as 
properly constructed would involve a compass. Similarly, these people by acquisition, well, they're making a state, but in a rough and ready sort of way, you know? And the important thing is what they're making is what we see clearly consists in what would be made if they followed institution, if they followed the explicit contract. Thank you, uh, Thomas. Thank you, Philip, uh, for that answer. We, we can squeeze in. I'm very happy to say one final question from Siva. Thank you. Um, many people have, I think, recently pointed out that when states collapse, you know, what you usually have is some sort of situation where you have warlords and people who, uh, you know, form alliances and and uh, so you have, you know, violence and, and these people often manage to create sort of fiefdoms for, for themselves and so the question is, I mean, one would expect something like that to happen in any kind of state of nature, I guess, uh, based on this. But why would these, you know, given the basis of self-interest that Hobbes, you know, mm, mm. proceeds from, why would these parties, you know, be willing to, <clears throat> to uh, enter into a social contract where you relinquish basically all your freedom or, or your power to the sovereign. And I think that's, of course, not just a problem for Hobbes, but social contract theory in general, I guess. Very good. So remember I mentioned in Hart that Hart doesn't have a social contract theory mm -hmm. law. And I mentioned about David Lewis that he doesn't have a social contract theory of convention. In their stories, what happens in this world they imagine is that people would adjust individually for their own reasons in certain ways. Um, like, for example, I shake hands with you, haven't seen you shake hands with somebody else, helping thereby to get the convention going of handshaking rather than cheek kissing or whatever, or hugging. Um, but that's just an adjustment that they make in their own interests. And Lewis suggests that a series of such adjustments and people seeing what other people are doing would aggregate, so to speak, behind their back, you know, without their will into a pattern of the convention getting established. That's exactly the same sort of story that Hobbes tells about, um, tells about the, um, uh, sorry, that Hart tells about law. Look, I'm going to do a bit of advertising. Sitting beside me is, is a book that has come out this week, I believe. This is my only copy, um, in which I argue that actually you'd expect a state to emerge under certain conditions. But I say emerge, and again, as a result of mutually reinforcing adjustments on the part of individuals, following on Lewis Hart on convention and, uh, and law, I think, you can extend their sort of story to the state itself. Hobbes is very different because these are not just independently intelligible adjustments by individuals in their own self-interest that aggregate into this effect, you know, behind their backs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. No, no, he thinks they have to come together and decide in a collective decision. And I agree with you. That's extremely unlikely, it seems to me, 
uh, I mean, you have to say it's a Hail Mary wish, you know, rather than <laughs> any sort of reliable prediction that they will come together and form such a contract. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that's really, really a, a weakness in the story. And it's probably a weakness in, in any contract story about even the nature of the state, you know, which is what mm -hmm. Hobbes says. This is actually what I'm attempting in this book is characterization mm -hmm. of the nature of the state. Um, and that's a weakness of any contract theory, that it requires organization and collective choice, which is always harder to organize than individual choices that aggregate upwards, so to speak. And in, yeah, I should say. But we'll still have the circle. Still have? We'll still have the circle, at least. Oh, yes, we'll have the circle, right, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, the circle didn't require various people to come together, you know, and make it, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, thank you ever so much, everybody who asked a question. Thank you uh, so much, Philip. We, we will uh, formally thank Philip in one moment. Just before we do so, can I uh, draw your attention to the seminars that are coming up in this series? The first one of which, indeed, uh, is coming up in about 12 hours time, uh, where Barbara Arnail will be speaking uh, on the uh, state of nature uh, uh, and colonialism, empty uh, versus wasteland at home and abroad. Uh, that is tomorrow morning, uh, Australian time. If you want the registration links for any of these other seminars, or if you want to sign up to receive um, uh, news of events that the Social Contract Research Network is putting on, I just draw your attention to the website, uh, the URL at the bottom right there, uh, where you can find out more and sign up and uh, learn about what we're doing. Um, well, it's been my huge pleasure to be able to host this evening. Philip, you've been in extraordinarily generous uh, with your time uh, and the fascinating, fascinating paper and just such rich answers to all the questions. So uh, everybody do please uh, join me uh, in thanking uh, very much for uh, the paper and for the questions tonight, Philip Pettit. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's very sweet of you. And uh, good luck with the other seminars now, with the seminars as a whole, with the other sessions. Okay.